0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today we have a total of eight questions. They run the gamut of a lot of things about the therapist's perspective on situations that occur in therapy. So let's just jump right in. Question number one says, do therapists know when their clients are lying? or trying to avoid certain topics? If so, what do you do as a therapist? Most of the time, we will, we will definitely notice if you're trying to avoid a certain topic because we're trained to notice if when we ask about one particular thing, you use some sort of defense mechanism. Maybe you make a joke. Maybe you, uh, I don't know, change the subject. Maybe you don't have any coping skills and you dissociate. We notice you kind of like spacing out. All of those are things that we're trained to notice so that we kind of, for lack of a better term or phrasing, that we know then what to work on. Because if we're avoiding something, that usually means there's work to be done there. But if we we have to kind of understand why we're avoiding it first, as therapists, we can't just like push and push and push and push and hope that that makes it through. We could inadvertently, if we did that, we could re-traumatize you, <clears throat> overwhelm you any number of things. So we have to tread carefully. But yes, we would notice if you're avoiding certain topics. When it comes to lying, now therapists as a whole, I mean, I'm speaking personally, we are very good at reading people. I can usually tell even in my regular life if someone isn't being fully honest, but we don't always know because we're human as well. And if you're a really good liar or we don't have any reason to think that you would be lying, we might not notice. Um, I used to joke that you know, if we got paid extra every time our patients lied, we'd be like super, super wealthy because all clients lie to their therapists. And that could be straight up lying. That could be lying by omission. It could be a lot of reasons also behind it. Like we're not ready to talk about it yet. I think I talked about this last week, but even in my own therapy, my therapist had asked me a question. I forget what the exact question was, but I didn't really want to talk about it. And I found myself wanting to lie. And instead of doing that, I let her know. I was like, oh, I was like, just so you know, Caroline, I was like, I, I wanted to lie right there. And I don't really know why, but, you know, I felt the urge to do it. And so maybe that's something we could dig into later, because I don't really want to talk about it now. And she understood. And she was like, thanks for letting me know. Yes, I agree. That's probably an area we want to explore, um, but maybe not at this moment. So overall, we might know or we might not. Now to move on to the second component of this question where it says, if so, so if we do know that you're lying or you're avoiding a certain topic, what do you as, what do you do as a therapist? A lot of times we're just curious. Again, we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to push too much too fast. So instead of saying, are you lying or saying it seems like you want to avoid that, we might ask more questions or ask for more clarity or say something like, I sense some discomfort in you when I bring up topics about your mom. Um, you know, do you want to explore that or does that just feel like too much today? So we kind of give you like an out, but we want to acknowledge the fact that we're noticing that. Also, if you hear a little crunchy crunch, my dog Roxy is eating her lunch, I guess, because it's her breakfast, but she never finished. So I'm sorry about that. Um, so we'll just call it out directly, but in a way that's very compassionate and very understanding because we know it's hard to talk about certain things. Now I have had clients lie a lot. And here is something that I just kind of want to explore because I think it's important for people to understand that if a patient is lying like all the time, I had one patient in particular who just never told me the truth and he would want his mom to come into sessions every so often. They had recently, he'd moved back home recently and he wanted her to, you know, be aware of what he was doing and the work that he was, you know, kind of because it was part of the agreement of him being able to move home. And so she would come in every so often and I would learn in every one of those sessions just how much he was lying to me about what he was doing. Cause he, you know, was on medication, so he wasn't supposed to be smoking pot or drinking too much. And I found out that he was. He told me he'd been eating more healthily. I found out that he wasn't. There were a bunch of different, you know, things we were working on. And he was telling me he was doing it and he wasn't. And so as this continued, it got to the point where I had to have like a heart to heart with him where I said, you know, by you not being honest with me, you know, it, it prevents me from being able to help you because I think you're here and you're actually here, right? And those are not the same. And, you know, we learned that he thought it was him pleasing me and that then I'd be happy for him or, happy, you know, it would in some ways be like more accepting for him. But in the end, I ended up having to discontinue treatment with him because he. I don't think he was really ready to work on it. Because even after we had like many, we've had those come to Jesus's like over and over the line impeded our ability to work together because he just kept doing it and it kept coming up and we kept having that conversation and finally I had this this talk with him where i said do you think maybe you're just not ready to be in therapy to which he agreed yes he felt kind of forced by his parents so you know and obviously that's like a one example but i wanted to share it because line while it happens in therapy all the time when it's constant and consistent throughout treatment so much so that your therapist doesn't know how you're doing or if the tools or techniques that they're, you know, using with you are working. If that's what's happening, then it can be really, really hard for us to work together and to move forward because we're, again, we're going to think you're doing one thing and certain things are working and they're not. And so we're, we're not really able to help you. It's almost like you're tying our hands behind our back and, you know, then no work can be done. Okay. Now, there were comments on this that said also, if a therapist does think a client is lying, do they call them out on it? In my experience, lying almost always serves a purpose. For me, that purpose is to protect myself, just like I said. Do you think clients should be allowed to set boundaries with therapists around what topics they want to address or what they want to keep to themselves? Or does this hinder the therapeutic process? I loved this question because you can obviously set boundaries with your therapist. But remember, boundaries aren't about what you need them to do. Like, don't ask me about this topic. The boundary is like what you're going to do. So you're like, if you keep asking me about this topic, I'm not going to come back into treatment, I guess. I feel like boundaries in therapy are there because there should be boundaries around what you know about your therapist and things like that. But I don't, this will just impede the the process because again, the things that you don't want to talk about are the things that you need to the most because that's why we're avoiding them, because they're uncomfortable. And unfortunately, if things in therapy aren't uncomfortable, I know this is a shitty fact, but if things in therapy are not uncomfortable, then they're probably not going to work. In order for therapy to work, it has to challenge us. It has to push us to be better. And if we're not being pushed and we don't feel a little uncomfortable, nothing's going to change. And then it's like, why are we wasting our time doing this? Now, I know that's hard to hear, but We can definitely not talk to our therapist about certain topics, but then I just want you to know that things revolving around those topics, which could be like our whole life, aren't going to improve. And so we can definitely do that, but I would encourage you instead to let your therapist know, you know, these things are really uncomfortable for me now. It's something I'd like to work towards. I'm just not there yet because that's really the goal. No one you know, would say that talking about uh, past uh, traumas and experiences or even just things that are shameful for us and we're embarrassed about, like a lot of my eating disorder patients won't want to disclose all of their behaviors because they find them really embarrassing and really, they're really shame filled with it about it. But they will say, you know, there's more to it. I just don't feel like I can talk about it yet. with the goal of us getting to a place where they can talk about it, because I will tell you this, those things that you feel so ashamed of or you find are really distressing, don't want to talk about them, you you find yourself avoiding it. When you finally say it out loud to another person and you acknowledge that that happened and you get support, affirmation, you get uh, validation, you feel so much better. I cannot tell you the relief and the release that you get through that experience. And so the goal is really to work towards it, not to completely stop a therapist from asking about it. But we can let them know, hey, this is really triggering. I'm not in a place to do that right now. And that's totally fair. Okay. Another add-on says, how long will a therapist let a client lie to them if they know? Not very long. Um, probably a session or two, but maybe not even that. Like if it's usually by the second session. So with my patient, the one example, when I didn't really know that he was lying all the time, when his mom would come into session, um, depending on how that session, because a lot of it was just geared around like the interaction between him and his mom and finding ways for them to work together, I most likely when she was out of that room because she wasn't in for a full session, she would go out, then I would address it straight up. Or if she, if she was in the whole session, I would probably bring it up the next session. So we will bring it up pretty quickly because it's, it's even though we think of lying, like, oh, you're such a liar and we think that's such a terrible thing, in therapy, it's incredibly common and it's even more important that we shed light on it and bring our attention to it to better understand why it's there. Like what purpose is it serving? Like in the case of my patient, he just really didn't want to be in therapy and felt forced. So he would lie just so that I, you know, I feel good about it or think he was doing well because that he really wanted to please me part of it with his parents. He wanted to please them. It's like this overarching theme, but it was also just because he wasn't really ready to make change or to do the work he wasn't in a place where he felt like he could. Now, bringing it up doesn't mean that I'm calling you a liar and I get mad about it. That's not therapeutic. A therapist bringing it up is, you know, I've noticed that you kind of skirted around the issue about this, that, or the other. I'm curious if you're doing this on purpose or if it's done protectively or maybe both, you know, and talk about it. I think that's the thing in therapy that we always do is we bring things that normally in our regular life, we'd kind of like uh, pass over, skirt around, and we bring it up, and we draw attention to it so we can better understand it. That's the magic of therapy is the things that we normally ignore and stuff down, we bring about, we acknowledge it, we look at it, and we better try to better understand it. Okay. Now, another add-on says, Katie, I struggle with opening up to my therapist face-to-face. I'm a seasoned pro when it comes to avoidance, and I really want to be done with therapy and not waste any more of his time by avoiding topics or being dishonest. And thanks for your advice. I will occasionally send him emails in between sessions. I've done this a handful of times in the past and he's always um, told me that he got my message and then I would have have to address it until this last one. I have some serious trust issues and it has made processing a sexual assault nearly impossible. In the message I sent recently, I asked why he wanted to be a therapist. I explained that I was trying to move toward trust, but the part of that part of me doesn't want an answer because then I'll have no more reason to delay working on this trauma. That's pretty telling right there. He never told me he received my message, but was obviously steering our conversation in the direction of my question. I did what I do best and just kept my responses superficial while masterfully, ha ha ha, changing the subject. Is there a reason why he wants me to ask him this in person? Is there some sort of therapeutic value to be gained from having to look at him and ask something that will ultimately place me in a vulnerable position? Thank you so much. The reason that therapy is so beneficial, and probably the reason your therapist is doing this, is because it's a great place to practice things that we're going to have to do in life. Now, in order for you to trust other people in your life or to progress in therapy and in your life, you're going to have to learn how to ask people questions in person, face-to-face. And I'm surprised he didn't mention that he got that, but that we talk about it in session because that's how I address emails. And I honestly don't really reply. I just tell my patients, know that I will read them and then we will talk about them in session. I'll bring up the email and like read it directly either from my phone or I'll print it out because I'm old school and I'll read it that way. Because it's going to be important for you to be able to do things like that in person. We can't... Create relationships or build relationships in real life and build trust with other people without face to face interactions. It's going to, that's very, very difficult. And so I'd assume when it comes to this, especially since you're asking like a personal question kind of about him, like why he started, why he decided to be a therapist, he has every right to say, you know, I don't talk about myself in my sessions. That could be a boundary he holds, um, but maybe not. And if it is something that you really feel like you need to know, then I would encourage you to work yourself up to saying it face to face, because that's really going to be part of your work. That's a huge part of your work. You're you're talking about this like it's helping you move towards trust, but I have a feeling that it's it's more than that. I think that's kind of what we're hiding behind. And it's actually the fact that we don't like to in any way feel like we're confronting someone else. So questions feel confrontational to you. I'm making assumptions here, but I would assume that that's what's happening, that they feel kind of confrontational or it sets you up to get an answer you don't like. And maybe you're afraid of how you'd respond or react or you you know, you know don't want to be in that situation. But either way, I, I want to challenge you on this belief that this emailing of questions is moving you towards trust. I think it's allowing you to hide in your favorite coping skill, which is, you know, kind of like the pushing away and the avoidance. That's like the best thing that you, that's the thing you do the best, right? That's what you feel strongest at. Like you said, you're a seasoned pro. And this is just your way of avoiding face-to-face conversation. And Therapy is a beautiful place to practice something that we don't know how to do very well, if at all. And so I really encourage you strongly, even if you are going to send an email, my challenge to you would be to not send it and to print it out and to read it in session. And you can even say, I was going to send you this email, but I'm trying to work on this. And that's not about building up trust. That's about building your ability to do something that's uncomfortable and to hang in there and do it anyway. I know you hate my answer, but that's the truth. And that's the reason that he's not replying anymore. I think he probably sees this as continuing to impede your progress. And it's almost like he's, because as therapists, after a little while, when we do something, if it's like a pattern of doing something, we can feel like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm getting pulled into an unhealthy behavior. Because we can do that too. As your therapist, we can get caught up in these old patterns without realizing it because it's not our pattern right so we don't notice it right up front but as he's probably seen you send these emails to ask questions that you could have asked in session but didn't and so he's like you know what I think I'm going to probably stop I would assume I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to push the conversation towards those questions so that I give them an opportunity to ask it in person because I think he's realized that this is your way of avoiding and again we don't want to fall into that we want to challenge you and push you remember earlier I said if therapy is not challenging and not uncomfortable it's not going to move us in a positive direction we're not going to be able to change anything right we're comfortable with the way things are we just don't like how we feel or we don't like what's the outcome that it's given us but in order to feel better and to get a better outcome we're going to have to change and that is a little discomfort so that is my advice there and I'm sorry I know you hate it but it's really the truth and there's also nothing wrong with asking him like, hey, how come you didn't? But you have to ask that question in person. And I know, wait, but that's a good challenge. That's why we're in therapy. So we can practice something that's really hard for us. It might not work the first time, but we'll try, try again. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, from your perspective as a therapist, how important is it? Or how much do you pay attention to your client's body language during session? A lot, I'll tell you. I tend to get very anxious and unconsciously begin to fidget or play with my fingers or will avoid eye contact during our sessions. My therapist pointed it out the other day and says that I do this quite frequently. And I've been noticing that she will now watch my hands a lot during sessions. It is making me slightly uncomfortable at how much she watches me. Let her know this. Um, As therapists, we do pay close attention to your body language because it can tell us more than you often do verbally. Um, I used to have a patient she was an eating disorder patient of mine and she would sit, I've probably talked about it before, on the very edge of the couch. And I used to joke with her. I would say, you know, if I only had to rent the room for the amount that you sat, I'd only have to rent four inches because she just would barely perch herself like, Whoop. and I said, you can't be comfortable. And so we really worked on her sitting back. She was like, well, your couch is too soft. And I said, too soft. And she said, yeah, I I, I have to relax into it. And I, I don't like to feel that she didn't like to feel relaxed. She wanted to be like flexed and perched and anxious and overwhelmed. And obviously, you know, a lot of things going on, but we are trained to pay attention to all sorts of things. Um, you know, like dissociation, right? If a patient starts to like lose eye contact and talk a little slower and space out, I want to be able to notice that if a client sits on the very edge of the sofa and looks completely uncomfortable and, or if their shoulders are up like this, if they're fidgeting their hands, crossing, uncrossing legs, any of that, we're trained to notice it. Now, when it comes to calling it out, I do draw attention to it as well. Obviously, I had that conversation with my patient, but I would let your therapist know that them constantly watching you is making the anxiety worse. And maybe we should, instead of moving forward with whatever we're working on, maybe we should work on other ways to manage that kind of fidgeting, overwhelm or anxiety that you're experiencing in session. Because if it's making therapy difficult for you. If you're like, oh, I just don't like her. I see her. She's looking at my hands like, ah, I hate it. Right. And you're like, I can't stop. And you know, it's making it worse. We need to figure that out. We need to find another way to cope. We need to work on that before we try to keep working on whatever it is we're processing in therapy at the time. Does that make sense? But let her know because she might not realize now that she's watching you as you fidget. So we should bring it up. Now there was a comment on this. I feel it said, I feel like my, sorry, there was a comment on this and it says, I feel like my former therapist would always point these things out during our sessions. And at first it was fine. Then it made me self-conscious, but it eventually got so bad that I would dissociate when she pointed it out. And I was sitting on the edge of my seat that I was avo- oh." pointed out that I was sitting on the edge of my seat, that I was avoiding eye contact, that I would hide my hands inside my sweater. I would curl up on the chair, etc. I would immediately feel like I had done something wrong. And I would get this voice in my head, scolding me for behavior in such a way. Hmm. My therapist once said that I have the emotional capacity and reactions of an infant. That's so, why did they say that? That's no fun to hear at 38 years old. It has been, it was devastating and also so embarrassing. I immediately blamed myself for not being better at hiding this from her can this kind of behavior be worked through and sorted out? How do I get over the self-blame, shame, guilt, and embarrassment associated with this? This sounds like a couple things. The experience that you're having sounds like a childhood wound. I have a feeling that people in your life growing up had told you that you were doing something wrong and that you'd get in trouble. Maybe there was abuse in your past. I would assume probably physical or sexual abuse. It sounds like you're very terrified of doing something wrong and being scolded. That's a scary place for you to be which is why her drawing attention, like the shame is already just right there on the, you know, you're full. So it's like right there at the edge. So this sounds like what your therapist has done is accidentally tapped into an old narrative of yours, meaning that this old story you tell yourself where if anybody notices anything about me, or says anything that they don't think I should be doing, that I'm to blame, that I'm bad, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not lovable, something's wrong with me. Any number of those things kind of come out because of your past, I'd assume, abusive experiences relating to you, quote unquote, oops, sorry, I hit the microphone, but quote unquote, like, you know, acting poorly or misbehaving. Parents, especially abusive parents, love to use that phrase that like oh the children were acting up so they had to be put in their place or this is just how we you know uh keep our children in line right that that's that's often an excuse that abusive parents use when in fact what it is is abuse and it needs to be called what it is because children don't need to fear their parents and feel go into this like shame spiral when they're told that something they're doing you know is maybe not the best or not helpful or just something that you notice. So I think that's what's happening here is that your therapist has accidentally tapped into it. But I also do want to mention that your therapist sounds pretty abrasive. And if you can, which I know this kind of goes against like probably every part of your being, but it could be helpful to let your therapist know that when they said you had the emotional capacity and reactions of an infant, that that's really hurtful. Let them know that when they call you out or notice the fidgeting, that it's very triggering and you think it has something to do with your childhood. If you haven't talked about it, just you can briefly say like, you know, I think my parents were that way and it's just super triggering, but you need to let them know because it doesn't sound like what they're doing is therapeutic and if if they can't find a way to work with you, this is only gonna impede your treatment and we might wanna find you someone better. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news, We just have to take our time with it and we have to feel like we're at least okay and safe enough to start doing that. But we need their office to feel like a holding environment, right? We need to feel safe enough or neutral enough and okay to work on things so that they can offer us, you know, that unconditional positive regard that we talk about, which is really like what it sounds like, like the therapist shows up, there's no judgment there. They they meet us unconditionally and offer us positive support and you're not getting that. So we really need to make sure that you can get that. Okay. Now, another add-on says, does online therapy change the dynamic? Is the therapist missing important pieces of body language when having virtual sessions? Yes, 100% without a doubt. We can make ourselves look put together from like the chest up whenever, this is back pre-COVID, but a lot of times when I would be doing an online virtual session with a patient who was like on vacation or I, maybe I was on vacation, we just had to do a check-in or they were going to school. You know, if someone was a, wasn't around in Santa Monica where I used to work, if they didn't actually live there, then, or not live there, if they didn't actually, if they weren't present there for their session, but didn't want to miss it, then we would do like a random, you know, online virtual session. And nine times out of 10, I would have them stand up and I would say back away from the computer or the phone or whatever. I want to see you. I want to make sure you're doing okay. A lot of that had to do with the fact that I wondered if they'd showered I wondered if they'd dress themselves. It's fine to be in like PJ pants. Like you guys know I'm in PJ pants all the time, but I just wanted to see how are you doing? Especially my eating disorder patients, they'd wear like layers and layers of clothes to try to hide the fact that maybe they've lost weight and I want them to stand up. And it's not that, I mean, everybody's uncomfortable with it, but it's just part of that checking in. Now, That was just for me to check in and make sure they're okay. And if if we had a good relationship, I just asked them straight up, like, have you showered? How have you been doing with your food? How are you doing with, you know? But that means that when we're in session virtually, I don't see their legs cross or uncross or if they're fidgeting, I might see a little movement up top, but it's really easy to hide things. That's why you guys know I don't love virtual sessions in general. It's better than nothing, but it's not as good as in person. I know a lot of therapists have decided after COVID, they're like, "I'm just going to stay virtual." I hate it, and I don't really support it. I understand the reason because people are like, "Well, it's easier. I don't have to commute. And I don't have to pay rent. And I don't have to." But it's not as beneficial. I just that might not be a popular belief, but that's my belief. And so, yeah, I think there are things that are missing, and I feel like it's a kind of does a disservice. Now, there's another Adam. It says, I would also like to know how much difference does it make between an audio and a video session for therapy? I used to take audio sessions and was able to talk about difficult stuff better than the video sessions. One thing is I used to walk and talk during audio sessions in a big park with greenery around. I feel walking helped me reduce my anxiety. It does. And to a certain extent, whereas sitting in a room and looking at my therapist is just so tough, especially while discussing childhood sexual abuse and trauma therapy. When I have to talk about deep details of trauma that I feel hesitant or shameful about, I just can't look at his eyes and talk. I would freeze or go numb, or my voice would start choking. In some cases, we would switch, or we'd sometimes switch to turning off the camera so that I can share the stuff. I also used to hold back my tears in a video session. What cues does it give to my therapist? Again, the less connection we have with our therapist, the the worse it can be and the more we can potentially hide. Now, to this person's point, the fact that we don't have to be seen on camera can sometimes allow us to share more, which is what I would call like a stepping stone in the right direction, meaning there's nothing wrong with us doing audio only for a short period to get to a point where then we're able to do video and then we're able to do in person, as long as we're moving in that direction. If the goal is only audio only, I feel like we're we're missing a lot of things. And our ability to share space with another human, look them in the eyes and share something that's painful. We're going to miss out on that. And yes, I know that's uncomfortable. Yes, I know that that's something that a lot of us have a difficult time with, but that's why we're in therapy so we can get better at sharing it. I don't know how many times I've told you guys how uncomfortable it can be to hear the words come off your lips to another person and wait for that reaction. Like it's the first time you've said it. It's the first time you've watched somebody receive it. That can be extremely anxiety-provoking, stressful, overwhelming, whatever you want to call it. But it's really important for our growth because the goal, so any, I know everybody in therapy is going to have their own goals, but the goal at the end of therapy, the goal for all of us is to feel okay being ourselves, speaking truth to someone in our life and knowing that it'll be okay therapy is supposed to help with that and allow us to have this kind of practice run of it. And so if we're only doing audio only, there's going to be a ton of things we're going to miss out on. And we're not going to get a chance to practice some of the things that I think are key to our personal growth. It can get us along the way. It can move us forward, but I don't believe it will get us to the end goal. And I know people can disagree with me and be like, I did audio only for years and it was beneficial. That's great. But again, we're just missing out on some of those experiences and some of those abilities. It can have its place. And for this person, it feels too overwhelming to talk about it otherwise. It's a good place to start with the goal of being able to do video and then if possible in person, because you know, I don't want you to miss out on those opportunities to grow and to feel okay and to know that you can repeat this type of situation, meaning you can talk about hard things with people in your life and be okay. And that's really the goal there. Okay. Final add-on says, yes, I also wonder about this, especially on the day that I have therapy. It's like my body tries to sabotage me. For whatever reason, I can count on having flashbacks after therapy. And during session, it never fails that I will have this feeling like something is around my neck. I know it isn't, but it feels real. And it causes me to begin repeatedly rubbing and scratching my neck during session. Is that possibly a body memory? My the therapist hasn't mentioned it, but do you think he notices? I'm sure he notices. Also, if I start to zone out, he starts um, in you, inundating me with questions. Is he aware that my brain is about to pull the ripcord? Thanks for all you do, Katie. Um, I'm sure he notices. And that sounds like it is a body memory because it feels like you're triggered. And then there's something, I don't know what happened to you, but maybe something to do with your neck. You automatically go to that. That's like, to me, that's like 100% a body memory. That would be my my hypothesis. So yes. um, And the fact that you're having flashbacks after therapy, there's a lot going on here that I'm kind of concerned about. I'm wondering if therapy is too much too fast. You might want to let your therapist know that you're going to have a flash, you have flashbacks after therapy, you feel really cued up. I think my guess is what's happening is your therapist is doing too much too fast. Because even when you said like you're starting to zone out, it starts inundating you with questions, the opposite should happen. The opposite meaning he shouldn't ask a bunch of questions. Instead, he should bring you into your body. Meaning, I noticed you're zoning out. This is what I would say with one of my patients. I can sense you're getting a little overwhelmed. Let's take some breaths together, okay? And can you feel your back against the back of the sofa? I want you to lean back. Do you want me to grab the blanket? I have a patient used to love me to throw a blanket over her. I'd be like, do you want the blanket? Do you want to hold a pillow? Can you feel, let me get the silly putty. And I'd be like, can you feel it in your hands? I would try to bring them back and have them smell like a candle that I had in the office. Like there's, I would try to use their senses to help bring them back. And I would prompt that behavior. So I'd try to get them to, you know, you can look out the window for a minute and I'd have them pull their focus back to me. Okay, now back out the window. But that near far, near far kind of thing in our brain, it triggers, it helps calm us down. so instead of doing what your therapist is doing, they're overwhelming you. And I think that's probably why you're having flashbacks after therapy. So please let them know this is happening because what I think needs to happen instead is your therapist needs to stop asking the questions. And, in, and as they've reached that peak, then we need to slowly give you more time to shh, decompress, come back into your body and feel okay enough to leave a session. A therapist should never spin us up into dysregulation or overwhelm and then send us out for our day. That's the opposite of therapy and the opposite of what's therapeutic. Yes, sometimes sessions are going to be hard and we will feel exhausted. That happens to me all the time where I feel exhausted after my sessions, but that isn't me being dysregulated. And a good therapist will check in and say like, hey, where are you at with this? Are you doing okay? Do you feel okay and safe to go home? many times when I'm working with a patient who struggles a lot and has a really hard time staying present and feels really dysregulated, I'll put them at the end of my day and I do my best to end the hard work about 20 to 30 minutes in and the rest is spent just trying to wind down and get them to be okay. And I put them at the end of the day. So if I do need to run over time, again, I don't run over time very easily. I'm talking max 10, 15 minutes. I feel like boundaries and consistency of the holding environment is really key to our healing. People can disagree, but unless it's like scheduled to be a double session, I'm not running over because I want you to feel like you have containment around the time we're going to spend. Um, so I might run over a little bit in a situation like this to make sure that you're okay and safe enough to get yourself home. I don't want you dissociating driving a car. That I feel like that's irresponsible of me. And so that's what I wish they were doing is instead of ramping up the questions, helping you come back into your body and be okay. And maybe it's more lighthearted talk around coping skills we could try, things that we could do, books we could read, whatever resources until the session ends. So let your therapist know this is happening. And maybe say, you know, instead of asking more questions when you sense me kind of spacing out, could we instead do this? It's okay to ask. It's your treatment. You have every right to bring it up and any good therapist will hear you and make some changes. Okay? Okay. Let's move on to question number three. And I think I asked a sim- or answered a similar question like this last week or the week before, but hang with me because I think it's a little bit different. This question says, hi, Katie, how do I know if a certain pain is just pain or if it's a body memory? See, I think I answered this last week. What exactly is a body memory when you don't remember anything else and don't have other memories that could explain where it's from? If there's no medical explanation or cause, could it be a body memory and how do I know? Also, my pain can be an, can pain also be an expression of the soul? I remember you mentioning in an older podcast that the areas in the brain where both physical and psychological pain are processed are the same. Could you explain a bit deeper and share some of the helpful information? Is there no difference between experiencing pain and also no difference for the brain to store pain? And finally, how do I come outside of the cycle of pain? What could help? We'd be so grateful for your thoughts. Thanks for all you do. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Now, we know something's a body memory when it's triggered by some kind of stimulus that's related to our trauma. We don't have any memory of the trauma, but we can kind of tell if we do our detective work after something that we think might be a body memory. If we look back and we're like, what happened that day? Consider your senses. Where was I? Was I in a different space? Was there a different smell? Did someone yell at me? Did something happen? Was it really loud? Did I get sensory overload? Like we have to think about, did I eat something? Uh, Did I have something rough on my skin? We have to just be curious about it. And if we have no memory of the trauma, we might not be able to figure that out, but just hang with me, okay? So if there is, that's how we know it's a body memory, if we have the memory somewhat and we kind of know the trigger. We're like, "Oh, every time I go through this tunnel into the city, I feel this way." Um every like the person that asked a question before, every time my therapist starts asking, I like, "Oh, I feel like something's around my neck." Right? There's like specific kind of triggers that we can see or at least a pattern of when these body memories reveal themselves. Now, if we have zero memory and we Search for a pattern. We're like, I don't really know. Then we can go another route where we can go to the doctor and see if there is any organic cause for our pain. Meaning, is there a broken bone or a sprained ankle, or do we have Ehlers-Danlos and like our joints come out of socket really easily? Right, we have really loose ligaments. What you know, is there a reason or a cause? Now, that second component being like a real cause for our pain. I don't. I don't mean that to minimize pain in general. Because if we're feeling pain, it's real pain, period. doesn't matter if it's psychological pain or if it's pain in our body that's actually like has a cause. Pain is pain is pain, and it's super uncomfortable. And a lot of even physical issues that cause pain can take forever to get diagnosed. So I don't want anybody to feel, you know, harmed by that or think that I'm trying to minimize. I'm not. I'm just trying to figure out or give some tools and ways to figure out if the pain is from a body memory or if it's physical pain from like its own cause, right? It has nothing to do with the trauma. So those are just some ideas of ways to tease that out. Now the question about what exactly is a body memory, I talked about this in another, like I said, the podcast last week, I think. Body memories are cellular memory, meaning that when something happens to us, our body remembers. Like there's that book by Bessel Kolk called Body Keeps the Score. It's great. And essentially, even if we don't have a working memory of something that's taking place, our body can remember and we can feel it in our bodies. That's essentially what a body memory is. They're super uncomfortable. These can also happen in conjunction with flashbacks. A body memory can kind of be its own flashback. It can feel like whatever is happening happened happened to in the past is happening to us again. Um, yeah. So and you said can pain also be an expression of the soul? I mean psychological pain can be, because if we are feeling really alone and uh, disconnected and super depressed or feeling like nothing's ever going to get better, I'm going to keep getting traumatized, like whatever our belief system is or whatever kind of psychological distress we're under, that can manifest itself in pain. That's why one of the main symptoms of depression that actually people who are first experiencing a depressive episode will go to their regular like primary care doctor because they have body aches. I they think they've caught a cold but what they really have is depression, right? Because depression can make it hard for us to get out of bed. We feel really tired. We have body aches. A lot of us would be like, I think that might be the flu. And we end up at the doctors. Um, As far as where the brain stores pain, I don't really know. I'm not sure what I shared before. Um, I know that they're processed the same, and I'd read that article about it, but I don't remember like, I don't, I can't really dive in any deeper. Uh, what I shared is probably what I knew. Um, I, it was only one article that I read. That's why I'm like, I don't really know. Um, but just know that if we are in psychological pain, it can show itself or reveal itself in physical pain. And it's all valid. Pain is pain is pain. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. But those are just some of the ways to kind of tease out maybe what the cause is because nobody wants to be in pain, right? We want to find ways to feel better and to not have that happen. So, we'll want to sort through that. Now, there was a comment on this says, to add on, can numbness of certain areas around your body be associated with a body memory? Again, when you don't have actual memories, not necessarily painful, but not feeling anything at all. Thank you. Of course, um, yes, the numbing out, it can be as a result of a trauma. It's funny that we'd call it like a body memory when it's kind of like the lack of it, but I've had patients feel that sensation like, in certain parts of their body that remind them of the abuse. Like one patient in particular, like sexual abuse, she'd just go like numb from the waist down. And as we processed it and started talking about it, it turned out that that was kind of like dissociation for her. So check in and see like, if you think that that's kind of how it is triggered for you. But the numbness that has no, again, no organic cause, there's no issues with our nerves, like no MS, no no circulatory issues that could cause the numbness. We want to kind of rule that out first. Then it could definitely be attached to a body memory. Okay, now there's another add-on that says, um, Hi Katie, my body memories always come with great distress and anguish. Those sensations or pain in my body trigger the same shame and worthlessness that I felt when I was abused as a child. Any tips on how to overcome that state of anguish and despair when the trigger comes from your own body? The best thing to do when we have body memories, especially ones that like, it's not just the body experience, it's the emotions that come along with it, the anguish, the distress. And then it said it also triggers shame um, and worthlessness. Those are the things that we want to work on with our therapist, meaning that it might be the the best thing. If we experience a lot of body memories, I always encourage people to at least give somatic experiencing types of therapy a, a shot. Meaning, it could be trauma informed yoga. It could mean that we see a somatic experiencing therapist, like my good friend Dr. Alexa Altman, is trained in somatic experiencing. She also does EMDR. A lot of trauma specialists will have a certification or an understanding of somatic work, meaning that we have to move stuff through our bodies, and there can be movements that we do while we do the process in therapy. Everything from you know um, making sure you're like rocking along. Um, moving something while you're talking about something that's distressing to kind of get that queued up energy out of our bodies. Um, so I'd really encourage you to maybe give that a try. And grounding techniques are going to be really helpful. One of the first tasks or really tools that the creator of somatic experiencing, Dr. Peter Levine, that he came up with, is that he has you in the shower with like a handheld shower head with the warm water going over all the parts of your body and feeling the water hit your fingers and up your wrists and your elbow, like just experiencing it and be able to draw you into your body. Because when we have trauma in our past, we often want to disconnect, want to get out of that body because it's so uncomfortable and it's filled with all those memories, right? Whether they're body memories or or actual memories in our brain, right? Either way, we want to get out of it. And so part of the work for you is going to be finding a way to get back into your body in a, a as safe a way as possible, using your coping skills, using your resources. I think that instead of working to overcome this state of anguish and despair, because that means it's already happened, we want to track back and see if we can figure out what kinds of sensations tell us that these body memories are coming or that I'm starting to get overwhelmed. Do we know what our triggers are? Let's be a detective about it. Because oftentimes we're too late when we try to work on something because we're already in the overwhelm, in the despair, in the anguish and distress. It's too much for our system. And that means we're past the point of being able to stay in our wise mind, meaning we're in emotion mind, which is kind of more dysregulated easily influenced kind of overwhelmed right we we need to be in that wise mind in order to do any real work and so my encouragement is to do a little research to figure out you know what what are your triggers are there things that we can do to kind of avoid those or if we know we have to come into contact with them can we have some coping skills at the ready now i have a video 25 coping skills you can check it out that should be able to help you manage what can come up for you when you're doing this work and be patient with yourself um because it sounds like, you know, you're having these body memories, it can feel like they're happening to you. And then it, then you have this emotional, emotionally intense response. Now, something that could help in the interim until we can kind of be a detective and figure out some triggers, or at least the sensations as they build up before it's happened, before the body memory is like, um, is a full body shake. Now, when we shake things out, it like forces all that queued up energy, that fight, flight, freeze response. It moves that through and kind of triggers a release. And that release can be really incredibly freeing. Now, that could be something you can do. Another thing that is naturally calming to our system, if we're starting to feel overwhelmed, I learned this on the Huberman Lab. If you're looking for a new podcast, I encourage you to check him out. He's a neuroscientist. Anyway, something that relaxes our body. We know how we sigh, like we get stressed out. We're like, that us expelling... That carbon dioxide is soothing and calming to our nervous system. Now, we can't just force ourselves to sigh. It doesn't work quite the same, but what does is a double inhale. So we breathe in, then we do a little more at the top till we're full. And then we breathe out slow. If you did that with me or if you want to do it right now, you will feel the difference in your body immediately. So if you find yourself getting queued up, but we haven't quite figured out what the trigger is yet, and we don't really know how to manage it, try one of those, the body shake, the double inhale, slow exhale, anything like that to try to alleviate, relax your system just a little bit, because we're not going to be able to stop the distress and anguish once they're there, but we can prevent them from coming around in the first place, okay? There are a couple more add-ons. The next add-on says, Katie, is it possible that body memories change over weeks or months? For context, I had experienced childhood sexual abuse and multiple boundary violations during my adolescence. In the past few months, I started noticing certain ways that my body is feeling, which I can recall with the way I felt back then or should have felt, but it was repressed then. Though at the moment, I know I'm physically safe, but suddenly I'd feel triggered or have a flashback and then start feeling a certain way in different parts of my body. Is this a body memory? Yeah, body memories can shift just like our flashbacks or even repressed memory shift. Sometimes we remember this one little bit and then before I know it, another thing pops up, or our memory can kind of jump around and we're like, oh, I remember this from that. And even in my own personal work in EMDR, when I'm trying to recall one of my grief memories, I'm surprised where my brain takes me because we don't understand consciously what our brain connects one memory to right? What, is, what else is it connecting it to? Yours is kind of jumping around probably to different parts of your body and different experiences. And we just aren't really aware of that, right? We're not present or not conscious, I guess, of the way that our brain stores those things, right? And so yes, it can change. It probably depends on the trigger. It depends on how we're doing, how our resilience is. Um, all of that could shift where we feel a memory, For some people, it's always in the same place because that maybe that's the only place they felt harmed or the one thing that is the body memory they experienced. But for most of my patients, it kind of just varies depending on what the trigger was or what we're working on in therapy at the moment. Okay. Now, there's another add on that says, Katie, I have an additional question to ask having to do with body memories. How do you go about bringing them up with your therapist, especially when the pain? That might be a body memory is from childhood sexual abuse or sexual abuse is down there. And you don't know quite how to say that face-to-face to them without feeling embarrassed or ashamed. Sometimes I feel like I'm overreacting and that maybe it isn't a body memory, but it feels like one. It 100% could be. And if we can't quite say it out loud, my best advice is always to kind of go around it and just to tell them that, you know, you're having body memories. And if they ask questions, be like, I'm kind of embarrassed to share with you too much about it. Just be honest about without having to say the thing. If you're like, I just can't say it to your face. It's okay to say that. Now, the therapist might ascertain what you're getting at or what you're trying to circle around, and they could directly ask you. Or they might say, I understand. You don't have to say it, but I get what you're talking about, right? Just let them know that you're having a tough time. So, that you know that you don't have to bring that up directly with your therapist, but you can bring up the idea of it or the issue surrounding it, and they can ask other questions to ensure that they understand what you're saying and can help you work through it. Again, I think the the double inhales and the body shakes can still help with this. Um, I would also, just like I said before, do some research to figure out the triggers that cause this, but that that particular body memory experience is incredibly common, especially when we have any sexual abuse in our past. Um, so don't think that you're alone or that anything's wrong with you or that it's weird. I know it can be embarrassing. Anything to do with, you know, sexual stuff can be overwhelming to a lot of us. So just let your therapist know, yeah, I'm experiencing body memories. I'm just too embarrassed to keep talking about it. I don't even know if I can say it to your face. You know, just let them know. We don't have to give them more details if you're not ready. If they ask questions, you can say, I-, I can't talk about it yet, but I wanna work toward it and do that. Again, no pressure. We shouldn't feel like we have to go at a certain speed. We go at the speed that feels safest or okay enough for us in the moment. But we have to challenge ourselves, but not too much. I know that's kind of hard, but your therapist will do it and push a little. And if they get pushed back, you know, they kind of, it's like, oh, there's a little blocker. There's a little wall. Okay. We'll slow down. Right. Just let them know, but you're not overreacting. It is a body memory. It's incredibly common and it can and will get better. Okay. just have to talk about it, which I know sucks, but little by little. Final add-on says, can body memories be like you're touched again, or even feel like penetration accompanied by a lot of emotional distress? I just have snippets, no coherent memory, and I feel like I'm just making all of this up to have a valid reason for being so messed up. Why would anybody make it up? Nobody wants that to be an experience. You're not making it up. But then again, I do have other trauma symptoms, a lot of self-disgust, fear of physical, and fear of physical intimacy, and male attention. Um, so yes, body memories can can feel like it's happening all over again. I always kind of want to compare body memories to flashbacks, because body members are almost like flashbacks of the body. Like it feels like it's happening to us again. And it can feel like it's happening all over, like in a story, because we have like full memory. Or it can be like snippets. It's kind of like, boom, boom, feels like things are happening like in flashes and it kind of comes and goes. Um, But yes, it can be just to the person, like the person who asked the question that I just answered about like having pain down there, that can definitely be part of it. And we can feel like it's happening all over again. And I'm so sorry you're experiencing it. But try some of those body shakes. Let your therapist know you're having these kinds of, you know, memories in in your body. It's super uncomfortable. And we can try different coping skills, but know that as you continue to work through it in therapy, it will slowly dissipate and get better. Okay. It can and will get better. And no, you're not making it up. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. Question number four says, Hey Katie, have you ever had a client who was deaf? if they needed an interpreter would the interpreter sign a confidentiality agreement not to disclose any information have you ever treated someone who was deaf i personally have not however when anybody else comes into a session like an interpreter or even um like a parent they still have to sign confidentiality like hipaa so there's a bunch of layers and depending on where you live there's different layers to your confidentiality however when someone comes into your session, you know, usually there's some paperwork, they understand, they they will sign, they will read, there is confidentiality still in place. Now that could mean informed consent, meaning they consent to treatment if they're coming in to be treated as well. If they're coming in just like, like the interpreter idea, that they're not getting treated, then they would just sign a confidentiality agreement itself. And it would be up to you as the patient, because remember, the patient always holds the confidentiality, you hold your own confidentiality, it's yours to allow someone to talk about or not. And like the person um, had asked a question, or I think it was before, but they had said something about like, you know, not releasing authorization, not saying that something was okay to share. If you've ever not signed and a do- you've ta- your therapist has talked to a doctor of yours or your doctor has called your therapist and gotten information, if you didn't sign that release of authorization, that's what it's called. I know I've talked about this in previous podcasts. I haven't talked about it in this one, but it's called a release of authorization. You have to sign it as the patient saying, I release my confidentiality to this person for this purpose. You know, And you, there's even limits to it. It could be like for three months or for a week or just for this one call or whatever. So yes, an interpreter would have to sign a confidentiality agreement. But um, that would most likely, again, because it's the patient's confidence, like it'd be kind of up to the patient as to what's included in that. Like, let's say the deaf person was famous or something like that. They might want like a, you know, more intensive confidentiality agreement or something like that. But overall, that would have to be in place to ensure that the patient, the person who is deaf or hard of hearing, feels safe enough to talk. Does that make sense? I hope so. And there's a comment on this says, this is an interesting question. On the other hand, what would you do if you were a blind therapist? I recently read a book on a lady's journey from being uh, blind to owning her own private practice. And I've always wondered since, do clients get away with anxious body language? They could, but it, something that I think a lot of people don't realize, and I'm not saying that I know because this isn't my personal experience, but I don't have, um, anybody in my life that I know well who is blind, but I do have, uh, I have known people and I've had friends and my friends' siblings who were deaf or are deaf, I guess, but the one had a cochlear implant. So anyway, um, I've been around that enough to know that our other so when we take away one of our senses, our other senses are like like amped up. Meaning that let's say I was a blind therapist, my my hearing, my sense of smell would be cued up, like almost like turned up the volume on it, right? Because if I can't see and I can't observe that way, I could hear you shuffling. Like if I close my eyes, I could, I could hear the movements maybe, you know, like I could tell that you were shifting in your seat. And there could be other ways that I notice. Also, like even if my sense of smell is cued up and I can't see whether you've showered or not, I might be able to smell if you have. And I'm not saying like, oh, you stink, it's terrible. But I'm just saying like, I might be that much more in tune with those senses that I'm able to pick up on it. Now, I haven't had a patient that was deaf or blind. um, But I I don't think, especially as a therapist, my only concern would be that I would miss some body language, things like that. And just safety, just like anything, you know, when you're, um, when you struggle to see like uh, Molly Burke, who's another YouTuber, I know she has like, she, she, I forget what it's called, but some degenerative thing on her eyes and it makes it so she can only see through like a little pinhole um there are things she's going to miss out on and she has to kind of trust that things will be okay you know and that's why she usually travels with a parent or somebody else and you know she always has her dog and stuff but like there's some safety issues that I would be concerned with as a therapist because you know when you're seeing patients you, you you're in a room with just you and them and so just the security issue would be my biggest concern but Everybody finds ways to manage. It could mean that you have security in your office or you always have another therapist next door, which is what I usually used to do so that I wasn't in the office by myself um, and have like a button you hit if something gets a little scary or something happens. Um, So there are those kinds of concerns. But again, our other senses can kind of make up for the fact that one of our senses is taken away. Let's move on to question number five. This question is, hey, Katie, how does menopause affect your mental health? Great question. And do you have any tips for how to best deal with all of these changes physically and emotionally? Thanks. Now, menopause or low estrogen levels, right? Menopause happens when our estrogen level dips. Now, I'm obviously not a doctor, but from what I know, okay, and it does affect our mental health greatly. So when menopause happens because our estrogen level is lowering and dipping. It can, exas- it can exacerbate existing mental health issues, you know, like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, things like that. And also when we are going through menopause, if anybody doesn't know, unfortunately for those of us who will have to at some point go through it, those estrogen levels dipping can cause us to have night sweats and overheat. We cannot sleep well. Insomnia can happen. So those sleepless nights and feeling like we're not well rested can also you know affect our mood and make it harder for us to focus and we can have some symptoms that might look like depression when it's really caused by our menopause and our lowering estrogen levels and so overall yes menopause as a whole can greatly affect our mental health also men go through their own version of this when their testosterone levels go get lower and i want to say it's around it's almost like menopause. It's in anywhere from like 55 to 65 where you start to feel it, but it it starts before then, just like in women, like things start, but this is when we really get into a certain lower level that they call it menopause. Um, Any shifts, as we know, in testosterone, estrogen, any of like our hormones, our neurotransmitters, right? All of those things affect our mood and our ability to be resilient in life and weather the storm. And so know that it's very normal to feel not like yourself, to be really irritated and agitated. My best advice is because we know the cause, lower estrogen levels, to talk to your doctor and find a way to increase that. Now, there's probably some through food and things that we can do. Also, exercise is always good for releasing some of those feel-good chemicals into our brain, you know, but we might need to be on a hormone replacement therapy now I know people have differing beliefs around this and that's fine you're you rightfully have your own but talk to your doctor because if it is distressing and you find your symptoms of bipolar disorder or anxiety like going through the roof there's nothing wrong with treating it if going on an estrogen patch makes you feel better and it doesn't have any bad side effects for you then maybe we want to consider it you know Obviously, I know when it comes to estrogen, we have to consider our family's risk for breast cancer and other cancers in the body because it has been linked to that. So ask all the questions, make sure you're aware of all the side effects, and make sure you're doing all your regular physicals, but that could be a way to better deal. Because as a therapist, I could say all this stuff, right? oh, you should get sunlight on your face within 30 minutes of waking. You should make sure you're moving your body. I could do all the self-care stuff, right? I could even talk directly about like tools, you know, like using dear man as an act, and I won't get into it, but like when you're asking for something that you need, communicating more clearly. I could get into all these things, but when we feel like shit, We're not able to do those things. So me giving you tools and techniques and homework, you're like, I'm barely hanging on. It's almost like the same reason that we go on any SSRI or SNRI or other psychotropic medication. We're drowning in the symptoms. And so just like with this, with menopause, if you're drowning the symptoms of your menopause, we need a medication to get your head above water so then you can participate more fully. Because if it's just really overwhelming and we're really irritable and we aren't sleeping and we're feeling all these hot flashes let's get that under control because then we can work on the other stuff. So if there are still some residual symptoms, or let's say originally we had depression and this just exacerbated it, or originally we had, you know, bipolar disorder and this exacerbated it. Once we get that like exacerbation taken, like taken control of it or whatever, then we can go back and we can work on the the symptoms themselves. But that's really my advice. And I know hormone replacement therapy or HRT is like not everybody's into it, but talk to your doctor, see what your options are. There was a comment on this. as I was diagnosed with late onset BPD or borderline personality disorder, which occurred at a time of cutting ties with my brother, who is a narcissist and my abuser, but also during perimenopause. I was just under 50. Now I'm 54 and on HRT to try to help. But how do you think hormonal imbalances along with the issues from childhood catching up with me had to do with my BPD diagnosis? Thank you for everything you do. It could definitely attribute it to that. I would be interested for anybody who's diagnosed with something during something like early onset menopause, like perimenopause and menopausal symptoms or if someone's going through, let's say, like really intensive grief of the loss of a loved one um, or a huge life change, we quit our job, we moved across the country, we did all, well, you know, when we're in crisis, I'm always really suspicious of those diagnoses because it could have come from the crisis. That's why I don't diagnose BPD until I've seen a patient for an entire year, usually. I mean, I've, I like 100% of the time. But I'm just saying, I know not everybody has that time, but that this is how I operate. Because when it comes to personality disorders, yes, I hate the term as much as you, but when it comes to those things, I want to make sure I've seen it through the seasons because BPD is can be something that's misdiagnosed when someone really has bipolar disorder. We can be diagnosed with BPD when it's really an attachment issue. We can be diagnosed with BPD when we, you know, really or have have trauma in our past and it's complex PTSD, right? There's a lot of misdiagnoses diagnoses that can take place. And so I want to make sure that before I give that diagnosis that I'm sure that that's what it is. And I want to take my time, what we call like ruling out or differential diagnoses. Like we call it differential diagnosis because it's essentially what it sounds like. We're differentiating the different diagnoses from each other. So I'm going to take BPD. I'm going to say these are symptoms of that. Hmm, okay. It could also be this. Okay, these are symptoms that, and I'm ruling them out or in. Every therapist should be able to tell you if you ask, Did you do a differential diagnosis before you gave me this diagnosis of BPD? I'm curious how you ruled out X or Y, or did you factor in the fact that I was perimenopausal? We don't have to agree with our diagnosis, and we have every right to ask questions about it. It's ours. It doesn't mean that it won't ring true, but it's okay to challenge and to ask them and to get some answers and get to a point where we agree with it. It can take some time. We won't always agree, but I definitely think that menopause and hormonal imbalances could affect a diagnosis like this because I just think of like the irritability and all the, um, the depression or anxiety, the difficulty sleeping, like some of the things that can be caused by menopause could create symptomology that could mimic BPD, but I would again we'd have to be care- careful about it, write down the symptoms we're looking at. What did we think? You know, I don't have anybody who goes through menopause and then, you know, struggles with self-injury or suicidal thoughts, although we can, you know, suicidal thoughts, I believe, can be part of that almost like postpartum depression. Um, because again, shifts in our hormones. But anyway, just something to look at. Ask your therapist, how do we differentiate? Did you do a differential night diagnosis? What did you rule out? how did you rule that out? How did you rule BPD in? We can ask those questions. It's fair. It's our diagnosis. So ask them and get answers. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie. I'm a 54 year old woman diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and ADD. I just recently dislocated my finger. And my question is, what's the difference between shock and dissociation? Can you be in shock and dissociate at the same time? I would assume so. With dislocating my finger, I didn't feel any pain. It was like looking at someone else's hand. And when I went to urgent care, I was able to talk and relate what happened, but I felt like I was in a fog. Any thoughts? Thanks. Now, being in shock would have, I mean, I guess dissociation and being in shock would both have a trigger. Dissociation is when something's emotionally too overwhelming, right? We don't have the tools to process it or to deal with it. And so our brain pulls the ripcord on reality. Now, shock occurs when we don't have enough blood circulating around in our body. And so we can have like an injury or a burn or something like that. In medical terms, that's what they call shock. Now for you, you're feeling like it was just, you know, overwhelming. Like there was a sudden drop in your blood flow. Again, because shock occurs. So there's a big difference between dissociation and shock. Dissociation is when psychologically what's happening is too much for us to manage in the moment, we feel overwhelmed. Our brain pulls the ripcord on reality, either out of self or out of environment. Shock is when we have a drop in our blood like boom. It's almost like um, I would assume if we have heat stroke or some kind of trauma to our body, like for you, the dislocating of your finger, it dropped your your blood flow and you went into shock. Now, it, it, that's really how we define it. So it's a circulatory failure. Now, dissociation has nothing to do with blood flow. It's more about our overwhelm. And so I believe you could do them both at the same time. One could trigger the other, right? The shock could trigger the dissociation because what happened to us could be overwhelming, and we're like, ah. So yes, they could happen at the same time. But that's why you couldn't feel any pain. And if like you're looking at someone else's hand. Um, You could have been in shock, but you could have also been dissociated. You'd have to, based on what I told you, you'd have to like tease out what you thought was happening. If, because you said that you felt like you were in a fog, I don't know enough about shock other than, because I'm not a doctor, other than the fact that shock is caused by that dip in our blood flow. And so I think that that what happened to your finger caused that, but then that fog makes me think it was dissociation as well, which is possible. Could have been triggering. You'd have to let me know. Okay, I hope that gives you a little bit more clarity. Now, there was another question said, I have a question about dissociation. How would dissociation play into medical trauma? Why would someone dissociate if the trauma was under under anesthesia, like multiple surgeries? I was in and out of the hospital and my sister mentioned it might have to do with all the instruments that were touching me. Is that true? I'm currently with a new therapist. I recently changed a year after that question. Who does DBT? And she's the best. I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do together. I know this is something that has had an impact on my life, and many do not understand. They think I dissociate to to upset them. Oh, my goodness. Um, it is out of, oh, it is or out of lack of control. I know you can't make someone understand you, but how do you speed them up when they've had twenty seven years to understand and choose not to accept it? What kind of boundaries can I set with this? As always, you're the best. Okay. um there's a lot in here now, when it comes to medical trauma in general, dissociation could play a role because when something is overwhelming, when we're traumatized, it means we're a fear for our life or our safety or the life and safety of someone else. It's overwhelming. That can cause dissociation. Incredibly common. Dissociation and trauma, they hang out together all the time because of that overwhelm to our system. Now, when it comes to medical trauma, we the fearing of our life, if you're under anesthesia, I'm I, I'm curious about what happened because it could be the waking up and knowing that something had happened or having to go into surgery really quick. It's usually we have to be aware of the thing in some aspects in order to be overwhelmed by it. Now I know people are like, but what about repressed memories? It happened to us in the moment and that was overwhelming. That's why the memory's repressed or that's why we don't have that memory. But when it comes to this, if you were knocked out and you had nothing was traumatizing about you before or after the surgery, I, you know, would argue that's probably not where it's coming from. But, like, for instance, one of my good friends hemorrhaged after her last uh, giving birth to her last child, and the the loss of blood and having to rush to the hospital and passing out in the ambulance, like that was super, super traumatizing to her. And obviously, and just as some, you know, something like that would have been traumatizing to you. Um, so that's really that. Um, I don't know what your sister's talking about, multiple instruments touching you if that was distressing, if you actually experienced that, if you were aware and that was scary, yes, that could be traumatizing. If you didn't understand what was happening, it could also be traumatizing. Um, But then the last component of this, making someone understand you, all we can do is educate them if they're willing to learn and if they want to be educated. If people don't want to learn and don't want to understand us, they're not going to. And I know this sucks, but there's nothing we can do about it. If someone in our life is just hellbent on misunderstanding us we don't have any control over that yeah I know it sucks all we can do is if they're willing we can share our experience and what it feels like and hope that they learn from that that's really it I know it sucks but we just have to give them an opportunity to and if they want to they will and if they don't want to they won't I'm sorry Okay, let's move on to question number seven. It says, hi, Katie, I hope you're well. I am, I hope you're well. It says, years ago, my dad got a new girlfriend after he got separated from my mom. I didn't have any problem with her other than I didn't like the fact that she was not my mom, fair. I thought she was actually really nice, but after they got another daughter, she started complaining when I did specific things with my sister because she said it's things only the parents are allowed to do. Hmm, I never knew what she meant, but she got really mad at me. One thing for was for example, was that I hugged my sister with a stuffed animal panda. I even feel really stupid and question why I did it now. What? Because kids do things like that. But because I never knew what I did wrong, I lost my intuition and my sister wasn't able to enjoy time with her anymore. I think I'm not allowed to touch my sister if it's not my sister's decision, but I'm not sure. It sounds really wrong to me when I write it down. But so far, everyone else I've told about this has agreed to me that I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, I don't think you did anything wrong either. I'm now 19. And I just did a gap year of not living at home. When I wanted to come back, my dad told me that she said something like that if I come back and don't follow her rules, this is more about helping at home that she will move out from my dad. Wow. So my question is, might this already be considered some sort of abuse? I know other people have dealt with things that are much more difficult to handle. So sorry if this is just me overthinking the situation. Thank you for everything you do and for giving us the opportunity to ask questions. Of course. Now, I don't know what you did wrong. Kids want to hug each other and maybe your sister didn't want to be hugged. And so she was like protecting her. It doesn't make any sense to me. Not at all. And there was no education. Like if that was the case where you're like huggy and your sister's like, I don't want to be hugged. And they could have a conversation about consent or something. That could be fine and educational and totally loving. But this sounds, yeah, abusive of sorts. Like, look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... I don't understand. It it doesn't make any sense to me. Um like was she super super helicoptery protective of her your sister and not of you? I don't know. I don't know what the concern was. Um this sounds really weird and like I don't know if it's manipulation, I don't know if it's like some emotional abuse stuff, but it's definitely weird and I don't really know what you did wrong and I wish I could make sense of it for you, but it doesn't make sense. Can't make sense of the nonsensical, right? I think you're Stepmom has some issues and I don't really know. Um, And if she won't tell you what you did wrong, I mean, you could try to ask because now that you're grown, you could be like, what was the problem with this? Or maybe ask your dad, maybe he could tell you. But with the information that you have, of course, it's not your fault. I don't even know what you did wrong. None of that makes any sense. Kids want to play with each other and hug each other and hug them with their stuffed animals. And all of that's very normal. Nothing wrong with any of that. Um, But her Her telling your dad that if you don't follow the rules, she's going to move out. That's between your dad and her. And the fact that he even told her, told you this is just strange. I mean, I feel like he should have talked to her. I don't know. Like, does he not have any say? And what is it that you're not helping out at home? Or is there like a history of this? Like, where is that coming from? Um, You don't have to minimize your own pain or abuse and situation. Unfortunately, there's enough to go around you. You know, expressing your upset with this doesn't take it from anybody else. But I want you to know that what happened is not your fault. If they're not going to explain things to you or be more clear about what's wrong, like, I don't know, because why is that only the thing parents are allowed to do? You can't hug your sister? I don't understand. It's very bizarre. So I'd ask for more clarity if you feel comfortable doing so, if it's safe to do so, probably with your dad, it sounds like it might be a little bit better. Um, And then you heard saying that she'd move out from your dad if you don't help out, that's her setting a boundary somehow. So I guess you can talk to your dad and say like, well, what is it I need to do? You know, I don't want to cause her distress. I don't want to cause you distress. Um, But there needs to be more communication. It sounds like the communication in your home is not very clear. So ask some questions. Let's get some clarity. And hopefully we'll feel like we can understand more what's going on. Because to me, this doesn't make any sense at all. And your stepmom sounds like very bizarre. I don't understand her behavior at all. And I don't know if there's a pattern of this or if it only came up there, but yeah, do some, do some digging, ask some questions, see what you can find out. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. It says, hi, Katie. My question is why do I find it so hard to apologize? Hmm. For example, when my husband points out a wrong behavior of mine, even if I know he's right, I counter accuse him of something or I get to thinking of everything that he's done in the past that hurt me. I feel totally immature when I do this, but it's very difficult to admit I was wrong, especially when the other person is frustrated. I finally do, but it doesn't come easily. Thanks for everything that you do. Okay. My guess would be that there's something in our past about being wrong and what that means. Now it could have, so I'm going to give you some ideas of places, that the reasons I think this could be happening. Now, we could have been told when we were a kid that we were wrong all the time or that everything we did was wrong. We could have been made to feel like we are like just shame thoughts, like something's wrong with us. We're broken. We're not good enough. And so the idea that someone else would do that is incredibly triggering and kind of pulls us back to that experience and that feeling as a kid. We could have, when we were growing up, been like forced to apologize, even if we weren't sorry. We could have... um you know, like I said, been told bad things about who we are. And so when someone says that you're doing something wrong, you're triggered. It could also come from the fact that to feel like we did something wrong makes us feel vulnerable. And that could be because, you know, when we did things, we were wrong, when we were growing up, we were harmed or hurt in some way or threatened. So we were scared. So the thought of actually being wrong makes us feel really vulnerable, really worried that we'll be hurt. Um, we could have our own kind of facade of perfection and feel like we're only worthy of love or attention from other people if we're acting perfectly and in this exact kind of way. And so apologizing means that we're not, and it can feel like it's shattering that like fake facade. It's kind of a symptom of narcissism. It doesn't mean we're a narcissist, but a lot of people have those symptoms. And that kind of grandiose belief about ourselves, this could really be like poking at it and that's super triggering and we can find ourselves lashing out to protect that fake facade of perfection. So I don't really know where it's coming from for you but those are just some of the ideas of why. And you going like you apologizing and you like doing the opposite action is going to be your best way out because what we really need to prove to your brain over time is that by admitting you did wrong and apologizing, nothing bad happens. Like you're okay. You can withstand this. You don't have to be perfect. You are lovable as you are. Like we have to slowly prove to our body and our nervous system that by admitting we did something wrong, nothing terrible is going to happen and we'll be okay because often our intense defense mechanisms are just protective, right? It's a defense. We put up our defense. We're like, whoa, 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 because it feels too scary to not. So it's completely okay for you to be curious about this and to, you know, even the fact that you're like, I feel really immature. That's okay. You don't need to judge yourself. We're already having a hard time. Just do your best to opposite action it. And to apologize, even if that means we apologize twice, once when we maybe don't really feel it, but we know we should do it. And the next, when we kind of come around to it, we're like, yes, I am sorry, you know? Um, because nobody's perfect. You're lovable just the way you are, but there's something in your past that I think is like has caused these like weird beliefs about who you are and what's okay and not okay. And apologizing for some reason like really gets in there. I'm so sorry. There was a comment on this that said what about the opposite? When I'm faced with a, with a situation that is in any way upsetting, I apologize over and over again to the point where people get annoyed about it. I've been told that because of this, my apologies no longer feel authentic when it isn't my intention. Same kind of thing. If we grew up in a home where we were made to feel like we had to be perfect, then If something upsetting happens, we maybe didn't even have anything to do with it. We want to apologize. It's like the fawn response, that people pleasing, that like extreme people pleasing. It's almost like part of trauma bonding sometimes too, when someone harms us we go into that fawn response. We try to please them so that they won't hurt us anymore. The goal of our extreme people pleasing is to protect ourselves. And so that might be kind of your knee-jerk reaction. Um, I've even talked about the fact that I over-apologize and it's part of my difficulty with feeling like I can take up space and that it's okay to be me in the world. Um, a lot of that has to do with like self-confidence and self-worth and just belief in self. um could be coming from that, but that over-apologizing, it is done again as a defense mechanism, but it's almost the like, uh, almost like the martyr's role where you're like, whoa, it's me. Oh, no, no, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, in hopes that then something bad won't happen. So both are protective. It's like, if we apologize, we can make ourselves vulnerable and we can feel hurt. If we um, over-apologize, it's because we're like, yeah, don't hurt me. Don't, I'm so sorry. I'm so, sorry. you know, And both are done in a protective manner. And so just be curious about where it's coming from for you. Have you always been like this? What were apologies like in your home growing up? Were you made to feel like everything was your fault? Do you feel like if you apologized, you'd be harmed more because that meant you were admitting to doing something wrong? Do you feel like it's this fake facade someone's chipping at? Do you feel like, if you apologize and apologize and apologize that it'll make it will uh, stop them from hurting you or is it because you're gonna be so anxious so another key piece in the over apologizing is anxiety disorders and the fact that we'll like ruminate on something we did that could have been hurtful and it will bother us until we apologize and the person you know we feel like we've apologized enough we have to be curious not judgmental about where this is coming from because these urges to over under apologize they exist for a reason right they're protecting us for a reason and so, I would just encourage you to figure out where it's coming from for you and what kind of work. Like if you woke up tomorrow, miracle question again, if you woke up tomorrow and you didn't do this, how would you know? It's obviously not just the apologizing or not apologizing. It's in something and how we feel. And if there's some discontent or we come into contact with someone, we have some conflict. What happens then? How do we act differently? And how are we able to act differently? Like what symptoms are gone? And that will tell you kind of where it's coming from. Like for me, the over-apologizing is definitely anxiety-driven. It's also the fact that my family never really had healthy conflict. We like never fought, which you're like, oh, that's beautiful and amazing. No, I didn't know how to deal with like discontent and conflict in a healthy way. Nobody fought. So I don't even know what it looks like, right? It was, if it happened, it was only like explosive. Like once mom, my mom would be like, get out of the kitchen, like so mad because she'd like let it build. So I don't know how to healthfully express discontent. So then I people, please. Right. So just pay attention and kind of be curious about your experience and your story and how it came to be where we are now, because those always are protective. We just had to figure out what we're protecting ourselves from. Okay. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. It really, really does help. Thank you for sending in your questions. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.